another week of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias, and this is the show where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the, com- the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, authors, uh, even on occasion, choreographers, which we're going to have coming up uh, later this year. Um, you name it, we talk to them. Lot, a lot of film doings of late. Downtown LA Film Festival was just this weekend. Uh, a big congratulations to Sean McGinley and his feature, Match, which had its world premiere. Uh, A wonderful, wonderful film. I can't wait to see where Sean and this film go after downtown L.A. Mark Pellington's film, The Severing, you heard Mark on uh, on BTL earlier this year live talking about The Severing, his experimental film about dance and grief, Um, and it's a stunner. It's absolutely gorgeous. I I love that film. Um, and that screened at downtown L.A. over the weekend as well. Um, so a lot happening. Toronto Film Festival ended. Uh, we're going to see what comes out of that, what gets picked up, who lands on, on the awards uh, docket. Uh, coming out of Toronto, there are a lot of really incredible performances, just like coming out of Venice over the past few weeks. So it's going to be interesting to see how awards season heats up. But as we're getting deeper into award season, which really should pick up starting around uh, in October, one name for best actor, do not forget about him, Academy voters, Adam Sandler, for his performance in Hustle. Still one of the best performances of the year. And uh, I don't want to see Adam forgotten. I want his name bandied about uh, during awards. Because I think that uh, it's definitely one of the great male performances this year. Well, on today's show, uh, it's an interesting mix today. A very interesting mix. Joining us at the midpoint of the show is writer-director Pat McGee. And he's going to be talking about his film, From the Hood to the Holler. Documentary, and it is... All about Charles Booker, Kentuckian Charles Booker and his campaign in 2020 uh, against Amy McGrath to vie for a seat to knock um, Mitch McConnell out of office. Um, It's no spoiler, Booker did not defeat McGrath, but it was extremely close. McGrath lost to uh, McConnell, but now... Booker came so close to defeating McGrath in t- for the 2020 elections that he is now running and will face, go head-to-head with Paul Rand for the senatorial seat in the midterms, which are coming up in November. The doc- I saw, first saw the documentary last fall when I was screening films as a judge for Santa Fe Film Festival. Uh, sadly, I'm not a judge this year. I was scheduled to be, but they had a shake-up with the... Uh, festival personnel running things so unfortunately I won't get to see all these great films and be part of Santa Fe Uh, hopefully I'll be participating in some other film festivals here in the near future though as a judge and juror but uh, so it was great to see that that 
from the hood to the holler got picked up and got distribution. And especially now with its release, timed, perfectly timed for this next, you know, final push of campaign and going head to head with Paul Rand. Um, from the hood to the holler, it's in theaters right now. It just hit select theaters on Friday. It will be on VOD September 30th. It is one of the most fascinating, quote-unquote, political documentaries that I have seen. We've all seen campaign documentaries before. But this is really interesting, and you really get to understand and see what Booker's whole campaign idea and philosophy, political philosophy is. It's not talking about differences. It's coming together with the commonality. In Kentucky, that commonality, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, black, white, pink, purple, green, poverty. Poverty is a connective thread. It is one of the poorest states and maybe the poorest state uh, in the United States. Uh, and it's very interesting to watch how this, how Pat has structured the documentary and how the energy of the documentary fits the energy of Booker's campaign. So I am very anxious to have Pat join us at the midpoint of the show. I'm very excited for that. Um, had a lot of surprises in this doc that I did not expect. So I can't, including, he must have had 40 needle drops in there. So I want to know how on an indie documentary budget you can afford licensing. <laughs> For like 40 songs. Uh, because as you've heard me talk about many, many times with filmmakers, licensing for music is so expensive. Um, and it will eat up your budget. So I'm excited for Pat to join us. But before Pat joins us, we got a, a bit of a lighter note here. Heather's the Musical. Who remembers? Heather's the film, 1988. Dark comedy directed by Michael Lehman, written by Daniel Waters, starred Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Shannon Doherty. And it was the Heathers, the mean, horrible Heathers and their antics. Um, well, fast forward a few years to around 2005 or six or so, and Andy Fickman's interested. You've got Kevin Murphy and Lawrence O'Keefe interested, and thus is born... Heather's The Musical. And this is, let's see, where is it? I have my notes here. <laughs> this was workshopped. It was as early as uh, 2009, which with um, Andy involved. Andy was directing. Uh, by 2010, it was presented as a concert at Joe's Pub in September of 2010. Andy directed, starred Annalee Ashford, uh, Jeremy Jordan, Jenna Leigh Green, Corey English, and Christine Lakin, uh, among a few others. Thereafter, went to Off-Broadway. Um, so it was in Los Angeles in 2013. It went to Off-Broadway at the end of of March of 2014, Andy Fickman was directing it, then went to Off West End, West End London, a UK tour, 
off West End tour. But somewhere in the middle there, Andy Fickman decided, I want to film this. Now, he had had great success years ago with Reefer Madness, the musical. Uh, he was one of the guys that really broke the mold for taking a stage musical production and filming it and turning it into a cinematic event. We've seen so much of that over the past few years, especially thanks to COVID. Uh, Hamilton, we saw Hamilton filmed and then shown on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Diana the Musical, which I know many, many people panned, and it did close very, very quickly. I still love the camp of it, but it was very well done from a cinematic standpoint in terms of capturing the theatricality and that live experience, stage experience. Well, now Andy uh, filmed one of his London performances. Uh, Actually, it was uh, May of 2022, May of this year, and filmed Heather's The Musical. And this particular cast stars Alyssa Davidson, Simon Gordon, Madison Firth, Vicki Lee Taylor. This is such a, it's fun. Yes, there are tough, tough topics discussed in the film, uh, in the uh, musical, and addressed through music. But there's also some great sensitivity that Andy really brings into the cinematic experience and uses a lot of the great tools in the director's toolbox and introduces in more somber, serious moments that deal with suicide, uh, that deal with student anger issues and wanting to bomb a school. These are things that are very much hot-button topics today, more so, perhaps, than in 1988 when the original Heather's film came out. Um, This is one of the great things about Heather's the Musical and what Andy has done is, number one, he knows the stage production so well because he's been there since the beginning. And he's directed many of the stage productions. Uh, you know, in L.A., in New York, and in London. So he understands that so well, which, and he understands filmmaking. Andy has been behind. He's directed Playing With Fire, Race to Witch Mountain, Paul Blart 2, Parental Guidance, and one of my favorites, You Again with Sigourney Weaver and Betty White. Uh, so he really understands how to, how to merge stage and screen and what he does is stand out for me is you never feel like you are missing something if a camera is focused on one aspect of a scene you don't feel like you're missing something else because the editing is capturing the energy on stage so you're moving quickly while the production numbers are moving quickly And I think you see more this way than you would see if you were sitting in an audience watching the musical on stage because your head can't move that fast. Um, But I had a chance. I love talking to Andy. I always have for many, many years. Um, We have had fun. He is one of the nicest guys in showbiz, one of the nicest directors around. Uh, He is one of the most skilled Definitely one of the most affable with an incredible sense of humor 
and he's he has a passion that is unparalleled, be it for the stage, be it for the screen, be it for TV series. I mean, the man delivered such incredible TV series for us over the years. Uh, no Good Nick, Kevin Can Wait, and Emmy Award winning ser- Disney series Live and Maddie. He's got the chops, and you see all of those chops <laughs> put to use in Heather's The Musical. But last week, I got to speak with Andy about Heather's The Musical. So take a listen to our interview, our fun-filled interview, um, which in many respects is very tongue-in-cheek, as so many of my interviews are, especially with filmmakers that I know and adore. So here is Andy Fickman talking about Heather's The Musical. Hi, Debbie. Oh, my God, it's you again, Andy Fickman. My God. (laughs) <laughs> how are you last time we got to chat was for parental guidance how have you been i've been busy i know you've been doing how, do- how have you been how have you been i have been fine i've been just watching our our lovely friend bailey grow up before our eyes oh, and our little bailey b is a young uh young she was always talented now she's a young talented Woman who is just crushing it on Pretty Little Liars. I know. I can't believe it. I've known her since she was four. I feel old, Andy. No, no, no. <laughs> They're just, everyone's catching up to you in A. <laughs> that's how you have to look at it. Well, that's a good way. I shall. Somebody said, somebody said to me the other day, we are closer to the year 2050 than we are to 1990. I saw a meme about that. I almost fell off my chair. Yeah, that's what it is, so get ready. (laughs) Well, one thing that I was ready for, and you did not disappoint, is Heather's the Musical. Andy, this is so so much fun. Thank you. I am a a musical geek to begin with. I, I love film musicals, stage musicals. My master's thesis was on the movie musical. Oh, wow. That's cool. So anytime something like this pops up, and contrary to what many people said about Diana the Musical, what Christopher Ashley did with his film version directing the stage, I loved it. It was fun. This is great, and uh, uh, Kelly Devine, uh, also great. Uh, yeah. Always a good team to watch. I love something like this, and the fact that you also directed the stage musical before tackling this, I think this gives you a really great leg up in bringing yeah, this film to it, life. It was, it was really fun because, you know, like parental guidance, I spend so much of my daytime in film and television, and, my, and I have this passionate love for theater and have been blessed to blend the world. So having, you know, we started Heather's back in 2005 in Los Angeles, putting it together. And... By the time, you know, we, by the time we opened in the UK, 2018 for the run, we just had such an amazing time. And so when Village Roadshow mentioned doing a stage capture, it was a lot of fun because I got to blend all my worlds. All of a sudden I was like, I, I know my musical inside and out. I'm used to that. Now I can put my cameras on stage. I can put it all together. Well, I have to say, number one, 
I, now having seen so many of these stage musicals that have been captured on film to watch, what separates you from the rest? Is it, number one, because you do know the musical production so well, but you know, you understand camera placement and you understand how to use the cinematic tools in the toolbox. So you're switching camera angles. I never at any time felt like I was missing anything when in the final result where you were working with your editor, with David, and it felt complete, it felt whole. So often when stage work is being filmed and you're cutting to something or the camera's moving into a two-shot from a wide shot, you think you're missing something. Never does it feel like that with oh, Heather's I, The Musical. I, I appreciate it. It is that, you know... Sometimes when, sometimes when you bring in somebody else who doesn't know the material well, you know, they have to learn it. Um, here, everything that's on stage has been on stage since we created it. So I, in some ways you have a, a, a directorial hand because you always have the person make that entrance. Once I knew I had my cameras, my approach was, how do I make sure Debbie and every, how do I make sure everybody has the best seat in the house. And what do I want them to see? And it really made it great because as I did my shot list, those scenes were so ingrained in your head. And it's usually the opposite. When you're filming, you make a shot list and hopefully that's what it's gonna be. And you can figure like, Billy Crystal will hopefully do this and Bette Midler will do that and Bailey will do this and Marissa. But then you're shooting and you're learning. Mm -hmm. There's the opposite. I've already staged it. I know exactly what it is. I know when a person comes in that door. So I was really able to be super prepared, hopefully, for each of those moments. It certainly comes across that you were uber prepared for this one, Andy. And what I love is the high energy that we get really in the first half of the film, the first two acts. And the editing, it falls right in line with that energy because you, you cut. But when we get into the third act and the latter part, second half of the film, um, when it gets more somber and we really start addressing the issue of suicide, you get yeah. very cinematic with some beautiful dissolves. You haven't done, used dissolves up until then. So you give us the, the change of lighting with the blue wash of the light. You give us the, the dissolves which are and the superimpositions, which are beautiful and very poignant and really elevate this and make the whole thing very cinematic on top of being very theatrical. I love that. Uh, thank you so much. That's, you know, we always watch the audience and we know that the audience for this period of time is just gonna be having fun with the musical and it's a little rough and challenging at times. But then once you really start getting yeah, almost to where Veronica, by the time she does I Say No, mm -hmm. you're really setting the tone for the remainder of the show, which is where we get dark and deep, yeah. and we have a lot of issues to try to resolve, and I wanted to get intimate with the camera. I wanted the audience to feel that change in tone. You really do. So your, your plan worked beautifully. Your intent worked beautifully. And we feel that change in tone. You also bring in ECUs in that final third act. Uh, hands, just an ECU onto a hand. 
reaching out, little things like that. And I love that you do that because on stage you're not going to see that. You'll see the the act. That's the kind of fun when you're saying let's let's allow the audience to watch this. But again, if they have the best seat in the house, they're going to see that hand. And on stage where you are turning left and right and trying to follow all the activity, a simple movement across the stage can turn your head. Someone coughing in the audience can turn your head. Here, I felt like as long as I kept on screen what, what was the most important thing for you, the audience, to look at, we would be okay. And, of course, then you give us, as a film audience, the great fun of these beautiful watercolor pen and ink animation transitions between the big scenes. I love that. Oh, thank you. We wanted, you know, we didn't know, when when they first told us, when Roku first mentioned the idea of ad break, I, you know, if I'm doing a movie, I don't ever worry about an ad break. By the time it goes to a network, they cut it the way they're going to cut it. Where I, I'm not involved. I don't need to know how they're going to sell toothpaste. If I'm doing <laughs> television, it's my ad break is written into my script. When you're doing theater, you don't do it. So when we found out we needed to do it, we set about trying to get the most creative way to pull it off. And we kind of wanted to stick with that 80s MTV vibe. And Roku and Village Roadshow were so supportive of it. Once we pitched it to them and showed, kind of showed them the proof of concept, everybody signed off, and it was great. I just thought that was wonderful. And the way that it's broken out, because we go out, there's a slight pause, and then we come back with the animation. So I knew that's where commercial's going to go. Yeah. Yeah, I... <laughs> and it sort of helps you, you know, it, it always loved, there was the old series, the Bob Conrad, the old Wild Wild West. And at commercial... In reruns, they would always sort of go to it like a painting. Yes. And, and it was a cool way to know, like, all right, that's a commercial, but you were still in the mindset of it. So I felt like if you were going to go away and get a hamburger, I wanted to make sure you got right back into the headspace. It works so well, and I just thought that was such a neat trick, and I knew all your years of television work and knowledge of that, I knew that came into play. When, oh, when you crafted you. that. Something I'm, I'm curious about, Andy, with this, because you've got your stage lighting, you have the theatrical lighting for the production itself. What did you then do, if anything, for cinematic lighting for the filming? Yeah, so what we did was we kind of layered it. So the idea was we knew we had our great theatrical lighting that works if you're in the audience. But if you're not experiencing it and and you put a lens on it, sometimes that theatrical lighting would get muffled and a little burned out. Like you wouldn't see it the way you would if it was right in front of your face. Mm -hmm. So we added to our theatrical lighting sort of a cinematic layer that was designed to enhance what was there. And it really was great because it just meant, you know, more lights in the theater, but more lights that were designed to help the cameras pick up everything that those in the audience were getting to see. Mm-hmm. How many cameras were you shooting with on this? Um, I usually had four cameras uh, when I when I was on the stage catch side. Sometimes I got up to six and seven. Wow. It definitely shows because we don't miss anything, and we get those enhancements that the theater crowd doesn't get. 
So I'm so tickled that you got to actually go up to six cameras, Andy. I was I was having the time of my life. Gotta ask you because one thing that I question with this production, and I think I, I'm pretty sure you know where I'm going to go with this, is the the idea of bombings in schools, a gun in school, bombing the school, because that has become since the original movie came out. And even since she started working on this, this has become almost a watchword for the violence that, that has been happening in schools around the country. Did you have any kind of trepidation about that being included in this production? You know, when we buried, when we started in 2005, you know, uh, school violence was on the rise. Right. Uh, um, guns bombings, all of those things. I think what was important to us was we felt that we didn't want to change the message by getting rid of it. I think we wanted to point really a stronger lens on it to say these are these are real issues and we're not going to sugarcoat it. While we're going to end on a show that ends more probably on a more redemptive quality yes. than, than the film does, um, we really stuck with that. And then what we found over the years that made it powerful was all the, all the you know, our audience quickly became 13 on up. And as we started meeting our fans and our coordinates, our fan base and students and having so many schools come to see us, and we would do these talkbacks, we were, uh, we were confused because we thought, how do you connect to a show about America in the 80s, you know, there's no cell phone, there's no internet, there's no nothing. And the kids would say to us, we, we really understand because in your show, a kid writes a bullying note, puts it on Martha's lunch tray, and then they make fun of her when she goes to the party. They said, for us, when that happens, somebody writes that online, and then that goes viral. And now somebody will say, a kid brought a gun to school. We all have experienced that. So the kids were telling us it really felt, as much as it was a period piece set in the 80s, it really very much felt today for them what they were dealing with. And so I think that made us really know we didn't want to ever make a change. We wanted to sort of honor what the original intent was but we found that it was having a solid impact with our audience. That's good to hear, because that's the only thing that I questioned about the production, yeah. because just because of the times in which we live. But yeah. it is this has a timeless appeal to it overall, Andy. Uh, the issues, the, the characters, are as, they're as current today as they were when I was in high school back, yeah. in, back in, the set, or in the early 70s. And I, just, I really love that. But now, were you involved at all with the casting of this particular production? Oh, I've been involved uh, every, uh, since we started in L.A. I haven't, uh, as the director, I've been involved in casting. Everybody who's been on any of our productions. Well, I have to tell you, number one, the minute Simon Gordon appeared on, you know, on stage as J.D., all I immediately thought of was John Cusack as Lloyd Dobler. It, yeah. That's the look that yep. transcends the decades. And then you've got Vicki Lee Taylor as Ms. Fleming and also as Veronica's mother. 
but particularly yeah. as Ms. Fleming. She is so Julia Duffy. Yeah. I mean, I, by the way, I've directed Julia before. That is an accurate description. <laughs> and Vicky is such a delight, like Julia, both delight and um, Fleming is, a, is such an energetic character. And uh, Vicky, uh, every night, just would bring the house down. Every actor that you have on stage, but those two really jumped out at me only because of my age, which tells me that people of the ARP crowd, they are going to immediately recognize those traits and get drawn into this as well. Yeah, yep. You're just too smart for your own good sometimes, Andy. <laughs> just too smart. Very kind. <laughs> well, I know that I know that the the girls are going to take me away here in a minute or take you away, but I've got to ask you. With every production, I see something new. I see something in your growth, going from something Reefer Madness, yeah, the movie musical, which was a hoot and a holler and a kick in the ass, to Paul Blart, Witch Mountain. You know the revitalization of Rich of Witch Mountain all the way up to parental guidance or even you again. How do you think you grew as a director in bringing Heather's the Musical onto film for everybody? What did you learn as a director in making this one and transitioning from stage to film with it? You know, I think that you have a, as, the longer you're in the industry, I think, you know, you learn tricks of the trades for sure. I think that with Heather's, you know, it's such a personal story. You know, you feel sort of parental to it because you've given birth to it from the beginning. And I think that that means the choices you're making, pro and con, you realize you're making for the longevity of the show that that it's not, you know, what I love about theater is it's a one night only. That audience and that cast and that band and that production will never be, can't be duplicated after the curtain closes because the next night, that audience, different audience, different, it'll all change. Here, you're locking it down. So I think what I really tried to do was, with Kevin and Larry by my side, was to make decisions that I felt were the right decision for the longevity of the show. And I think having had the benefit of having had enough years experience in the business to know to trust your gut when and more times than not well i'm glad you trusted your gut this is really it's a wonderful stage production musical production it's a wonderful cinematic experience i oh, really love it andy so now when am i going to get to see one true loves when is that coming out one true love should come out uh, sometime in the early part of next year well, I'm looking for it. I can't wait. I can't wait, Andy. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Debbie, it was good that we, we can't let it go so long next time. I know. I know. Well, you got to stop doing so much television and do more films. I, I, I yeah. I <laughs> do everything I can. <laughs> oh, Andy, this has been so much fun. Hopefully we'll get to talk when One True Loves comes out. I will make sure that they, I will make sure of it. Oh, Andy, thank you so much. And you have a fantastic rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was the wonderful Andy Fickman talking about Heather's The Musical. Book, music, and lyrics by Kevin Murphy and Lawrence O'Keefe. The choreography is 
by the incredible Gary Lloyd. Um, and Heather's musical, it's out on Roku right now. You can see it. Uh, it just broke on Friday. So check it out. It is entertaining. Um, catchy songs. Candy Store is one of the best production numbers uh, in uh, of the musical, of the film. And you will have a good time watching it, even with the heavier and sometimes darker themes. Um, but yeah, Andy Fickman, I adore him. And yes, we're going to chat again early in the year when his next film comes out. And uh, of course, you're going to hear that interview here on Behind the Lens. And right now, we're going to shift gears. We're, we're, we're getting political here with a documentary that I love from Pat McGee. Hey, Pat. Hey, how are you, Debbie? I'm so happy to get to speak with you. Um, I was so thrilled, number one, when I screened from the hood to the holler when I was a juror and a judge for Santa Fe Film Festival. I didn't make it uh, to Santa Fe for the festival in February, but uh, I'm utterly thrilled you got a distribution deal on the film, and it's now... In theaters right now, it'll hit VOD September 30th because this is an important film, especially with the midterm elections coming up. And I love this documentary. I I, I loved it when I first saw it as part of the whole pack of 504 submissions for Santa Fe. <laughs> and I still love it. So... <laughs> Holy moly! So you're on Santa Fe Jury. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I'm actually here with Adam Lincoln now, who's uh, the producer and editor, one of the producer and editors, and he also worked with us on American Relapse. Um, but yeah, I can't believe it. 504 uh, films. How many did you have to? How many did you get to watch? I watched all 504. Oh my gosh! Because I'm a masochist. <laughs> uh, I think it's safe to say I am the only judge and or juror for Santa Fe Film Festival who watched every single film submitted wow i mean that's amazing some were painful I mean, i'll admit it some were painful <laughs> well i i just think it's 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 amazing to uh you know to have people like watch this film because it, it really has it just resonates with people you know we've we've had this opportunity to take it all across the country from anchorage to alexandria we were in cleveland and omaha Martha's Vineyard, I mean, Brooklyn, I mean, and, and what's, what's clear is it just connects with people, and, um, and that means a lot to us. I think, um, it's, it, as you said, it's, it, it's, an, it's an important film. Well, and that's what struck me when I first saw the film, and now having watched it yet again, is that it very much connects with everybody, and the film connects because of the fact that you're showcasing exactly who Charles Booker is and his philosophy of connecting people rather than saying, we're this, they're that, never shall the twain meet. In his mind and in his philosophy and in his campaigning, yes, let's find the commonality. The commonality in Kentucky is poverty. It doesn't matter, I said at the top of the show, if you're black, white, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, pink, purple, green, or yellow. Um, everybody can relate to the economic stress of poverty. And, and this is what you highlight. You know, you bring that in by 
taking your lead from Charles Booker. And I really thought that was so smart for you to do. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it, it, I got feedback. No, I think that's right because my phone just keeps echoing. Huh, um, you sound, right now you sound great on our end. Oh, okay. Um, I, well, I mean, it's exactly that. I mean, his, his message is uniting. And I think, you know, it really is about having a conversation and, and bringing people together. And you look at these other politicians that he's running against, they're always talking down to people, you know. And it, it's this once-in-this-lifetime opportunity to get someone like Charles Booker elected that has that lived experience that you pointed out that really can understand what the struggle is all about and that, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. Well, and right now with the midterms coming up, uh, the whole poverty and economic issues with inflation are just, it's kicking everybody in the ass across the country. Um, so, I mean, he has, he has his pulse on the heartbeat of America in Kentu- with Kentucky. And this is what you really focus on, because you shot this during the 2020 campaign when he was running against Amy McGrath. Um, And I still think, I highly suspect that had all of the polling places not been shut down in Louisville and minimized elsewhere in the state, I really think he might have been able, he would have won the election against McGrath. But when you've got somewhere like Louisville and you've got 760,000 people who live there and only one polling place, come on, you know. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, and hi, this is Adam. Uh, Adam. Hey, Adam. Hi, how's it going? You know, it's crazy because every time we screen that in the theater with an audience, the moment where that fact comes on the screen, I swear every single time, there's an audible gas. Yep. Because it shocks people to the core that this could be happening and it did happen. And, um, you know, that, that's exactly right. Because I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. All these people that um, are smart, connected, they follow the news and they're just, they get so frustrated because they're like, I can't believe this was, was happening in Kentucky. How is this even possible? And so shedding a little light on that is, is, uh, is super important. Well, and you very smartly, because there's so much that was happening during this 2020 campaign, COVID, lockdowns were just starting. And I love Booker's whole idea of a socially distanced campaign. And he would talk about that in his speeches and his rallies, his small rallies. And he embraced that rather than use that as an excuse. Um, He embraced that and you capture that, but you don't, focus on that you don't you with this doc you don't hone in and make it subjective versus objective socially distanced campaigning covid voter disparity the polling uh, the polling problems black lives matter you don't single any one thing out you're essentially giving equal time to everything and i so appreciate that from you as a documentarian, that you keep your eye on the ball on the totality of the circumstances and not just one particular aspect. Was that difficult to do in this production process? 
I, I love that observation, and, and thank you for that. I mean, it was a collective effort between our, our filmmaking team, Terry and Adam, the producers and editors, and Greg, the, the DP. I mean, I, I think it's like when you, when you look at Charles, it's, you're, you're literally following that story, so there's so much there. There's, you know, exactly like you said, the brief tailor, and I mean, the, the fight for um, a woman's right to choose. Um, so many things that were, were happening, and... I mean, you look at it now, and it's more relevant now than ever. Yes. <laughs> and I think so much of it tied into the war on poverty as well. And, and all those elements are strings of that. And, and then how do you keep fighting for that when, when it seems to be there are just so many losses? You know, and it's like uh, Nina Turner says, you know, justice is not a destination, it's a journey. And I think that trying to convey that vibe through all those issues was um, because sometimes it's really bleak, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I mean, just the battle, the, the, the battle of the right for, for clean water, you know, that's, that's real. And that's, that's happening all across our country. I'm originally from Flint, Michigan. And, you know, we know very well that that's, like. <laughs> that's um, a huge, huge so, issue. Yes. Absolutely. You know, because you shot this during the 20 2020 campaign, uh, everybody's on lockdown, still finding footing, especially with filming and shooting. Now, granted, this wasn't a traditional Hollywood narrative film production. It was, you know, it, from all from all in, for all intents and purposes, based on what I'm seeing on screen, you were really shooting essentially guerrilla style, um, to capture as much as you could, and then do your editing and developing your through line in post but this had to be kind of fly by the seat of your pants not knowing with the whole covid situation uh how this was going to impact the production if you were going to be able to shoot talk to me about that aspect of bringing this documentary to life sure it, it, it was it was a difficult time it was a tricky time and we were kind of following our heart and, and and Charles Booker, and what that really meant was there were two of us in the field, myself and, and Greg Taylor, the DP, and it was guerrilla style, as you mentioned. Um, with that said, we, we shot as much as we could, um, and then after that, we kind of reset. We did we did those big interviews um, mm-hmm. afterwards, myself and Adam and, um, and Greg, and that kind of like really started to pull everything together. And I think, but also, I mean, if you, when I looked at the raw footage, I mean, there was, Pat was very aware of the strings that he wanted to be in the story and, 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 and was capturing those all out, um, as well as just filming nonstop without sleep. <laughs> 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 you know, it, it, it is independent, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just as real as it gets. <laughs> now, did you, did you go along for the bulk of the campaign, or I've seen some political documentaries or campaign documentaries where the director would get a phone call and the candidate would say, well, I'm going to be here or I'm going to be there. I'm going to be talking to so-and-so. You might want to come interview them or get the reaction of the people when this other person shows up to support me. Did you do that or did you guys just go along for the whole ride? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, we... Literally, we're finishing up this other film we did called Bernie Blackout, and we kind of 
caught wind of what was going on down uh, early in Kentucky, and I reached out to the campaign. I reached out, and uh, and they said, "Sure, come on down." As soon as they gave us the green light, we jumped down there, and we just we just kept filming. There was definitely, you know, there's some earlier stuff um, that the campaign and other news archival stuff that was that was used as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, we reached out to the campaign and. And it was it was amazing because Charles Booker, um, you know, he has no control over this. The first time he actually saw the film, it was a week before we opened up to St. Louis. And you know, just think for a second, you know, here's this guy trusting these group, wow. group of uh, strangers, and that's how transparent he is. So he welcomed us into his his, his uh, onto his bus and into his heart, <laughs> and, and we rolled as much as we could. Wow. And I have super grateful. I mean, I can't tell you what what an amazing experience it is. I mean, he's he's surrounded by people that care deeply about the issues at hand, care deeply about him. And if you look at his team and the movement that that is kind of growing as a result of that, it is inspiring beyond belief. And uh, I think we're going to see Charles Brook around for a long time. Oh, I and, I think uh, so. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we need people like this. We really need people like this representing us. They're the real deal. He's the real deal. And, um, you know, we're just super grateful to get a chance to tell a little piece of his story. Well, what I find really interesting also is in, you know, in the cinematography, in the footage that you have, is you really give us some really intimate, you know, up-close-and-personal moments using extreme close-ups. You really see the angst, the worry, the joy on the faces of those around him. Some incredible shots of, you know, his campaign people, um, profiles in thought and worried and wondering, uh, especially when it rolls around to Election Day. And that really connects you. And similarly with some of the, you know, some of the shots of Charles Booker himself. And it really personalizes this documentary. So this isn't some glossy campaign out there that's being manufactured and manipulated. These are people at their rawest, at their best and at their worst, at their high and their low. And that really comes across when you watch this. You're going to make me cry. I mean... (laughs) I mean, it's just the way you describe that is so true because, I mean, you know, these people care so much about what they're doing. And for them to have a camera that close to them, they didn't care because there are so many important things going on. I mean, and I think it just goes towards past work in the field is always, you know, trying to connect to the soul and that. But, you know, always trying to get close to, you know, these people and really feel what they're going through, um, you know, that's always the goal of our work, you know. And it's, I, we're just happy it comes through, you know. <laughs> it yeah. it I mean, comes through loud and clear, guys. Loud and clear. It's interesting because, you know, we did that American Relapse was our first film that Adam and I co-directed. And, you know, when you win that trust of people, you know, and you're in the street with them, it's kind of like being in the war room with Charles because these are very intimate moments. And this mm-hmm. is where they have no other, you know, they're, 
they're bare. They're completely naked to the world to see their raw emotion. And when when you're given that access um, as a storyteller, you, you cherish it, you honor it, and you, you want to share that with everybody. You know, something that you do that I really commend you on is you bring in archival footage going back to 84 and Jesse Jackson, and you tie that in so beautifully. You've got Bobby Kennedy in there. You've got Jackson again in 88. Uh, and then other, you know, more current archival news pieces. When did this through line start taking shape that so that you knew archival stuff might help and then you know, you go out on your merry way and try and find this stuff. Um, talk me through that process for you, because I know you didn't just shoot this stuff, sit down and say, okay, we're done. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot more that went into this. Yeah, no, I mean, I we love, love that part of the film. Um, and thanks, thanks for pointing that out. I mean, I... I had a chance to meet Jesse Jackson in 1988, and I've always been inspired by him. I knew about Bobby Kennedy and his, his efforts in uh, Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, mm -hmm. and so I knew, I just understood those things, and to, to kind of understand what Charles Booker was is doing, is, is, it's all of those things. I mean, you literally have, you know, Bobby Kennedy, Jesse Jackson. Um, Bernie Sanders and Charles Booker all wrapped up into like one little uh, present because mm -hmm. it it really is they they understand the working class they understand the struggle and you know I mean it, it really is kind of amazing to see that uh, you know, people understand that you know like Carla Wallace who was actually there you know in this great interview she gives this when she was in the hazard gym. Mm -hmm. When that happened, when when Jesse Jackson, I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, what great insight! She was literally there when Jesse Jackson was talking about when the lights go out, nobody cares what color your skin is. Every time I hear that, I just get fired up because it, it's the truth. Mm -hmm. No, it, and it, I think it was also just the, the trying to make this bigger than and help make people understand that it was bigger than just just this election. You know, it was a part of a series of people who move us to make change you know and sometimes change can take a very long time to, <laughs> <laughs> to occur uh, oh my gosh. was like, it was it challenging to find the archival and the news footage that you wanted to use for this documentary because sometimes that research process yeah. can be sometimes, a real yeah, bear I some digging i mean i think you know that there wasn't a lot of news coverage on Charles Booker, so we didn't right. have a ton of ton of stuff to come through for that. Um, from what I recall, yeah, um, that's right. You know, and that stuff though, it was so helpful in, in crafting also that kind of you know political thriller, you know, day of day of election day sequence. You know, just to understand that, like, you know, everyone was kind of leaning in and paying attention, like, whoa, this is happening, you know. Well, and something that you do uh, leading up to Election Day itself is the pacing. The editing of this documentary and your pacing, we're very languid. We're meeting Charles Booker. We're getting to learn who he is. And then the closer we get to the election the more, you know, you can feel the energy and the intensity building up, and not just with the campaign, but in the, within the pace of the editing itself. You can feel shots aren't held as long. 
until we get into that those climactic moments, uh, you know, waiting for the injunction from the judge, things like that. But you really start picking up the pacing with the editing as well, uh, along with the campaign momentum. I'm curious, was this pre-planned? Did, did it just fall into place like that? Um, what was that editing process like? I mean, I think, one, it was that we wanted the film to almost kind of be a few genres, and political thriller was kind of one that we thought of it as as well. And also just the whole goal was to make people feel, understand what it felt like this summer, this, this summer that, of 2020, where this thing happened, where these you know, kids were marching in the hills in Eastern Kentucky, and there was, uh, you know, this shining light of hope, and and how stressful and how much the tension was when that, you know, when it came to the breaking point of that. So it was just trying to convey that whole feeling, and that was, I think we just always were trying to make the audiences feel what it felt like to be there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a big part of this is also all the music that pops up in here. What do you have, 40 different clips of of music to license in this film? Yeah. <laughs> Adam, yeah. <laughs> talk, to, talk to me about this. We all know that music, I, you mean, you, not music licensing can eat up a budget. And it could eat it up a lot quicker on a tiny little documentary independent budget. Uh, and I'm looking at the credits. I'm hearing first. I'm hearing the different the, the different songs, uh, clips throughout the film, and then I'm r- watching the credits roll by, and it's the music clips endless, endless. So <laughs> talk to me about this, Adam. What kind of tortures of the dam did you go through uh, to secure all of this? I mean, we got them from, a, we worked with a site to get them, but the, the main thing was really making sure that they fell into, they all connected in mm-hmm. some kind of way, that it didn't feel um, like a bunch of desperate music, that they, they were all kind of in the same vein, but also that they represented the different elements of it. You know, so there, there is some country, there is some hip-hop, there yeah. is some, you know, political thriller vibe so it, it tries to kind of weave all those things together right I, I mean what you have it is so fitting whenever something musical pops up it's very apropos for what we are seeing visually and or the emotional tone at that moment it's you know a lot you guys paid a lot of attention to this when you put this together, you really did. Thank you for that. I think, I think you know, adding to that, there's there's one moment, um, a really critical part of the story of when Charles Booker is explaining um, the sacrifices his mom made mm-hmm. so he could eat and uh, and survive. And in that instance, we had Dennis Hill, a composer that we worked with in the past. Um, he actually composed a part of that right there to kind of make sure that we got it right. And it was, it was worth everything. So he, he was invaluable in that, in that aspect. Um, Cause we couldn't find a, a perfect cue. So we had to create that one. That mm-hmm. one scored. Um, also the other ed- editor, Terry Hayne, he's also a musician. So I think just 
that comes a lot into play in, you know, crafting, you know, how music is going to intersect with um, the story. Well, I mean, uh, we're, we're we're a collaborative little team. <laughs> yeah, you are truly, truly a collaborative team with everybody supporting everybody. Um, as I said at the top, I mean, this is really one of the most interesting political campaign documentaries that I have seen. Um, because many of them, they are pro forma, and that's it. Right. You've got talking heads, you're in the war room, you're meeting, you've got, uh, you know, polished, you know, polished moments. There's no, there are no polished moments for Charles Booker. He is who he is. And I think you just nailed that. <laughs> yeah, it's and this is what is really striking is you really feel like you know this man by the time this documentary ends, which now begs the next question. Are you going to follow this up now with the midterms? Well, that is a great question. I mean, absolutely, we want to be there um, toward the end of the election. Um, right now, we're working on another project, but yes, we want to be there because we're, uh, we believe that anything's possible. We believe that Charles is going to do amazing in this election, and uh, we think there's a real opportunity for him to beat Rand Paul. I mean, you know, the differences couldn't be any bigger between Rand Paul and Charles Booker. <laughs> That's like that's like the a bottomless pit of a cavern between the two of them. <laughs> um, right? Oh my God! You know, you find the highest well, Appalachian know, Peak, and uh, you know, <laughs> and from the bottom to the top, that's going to be the difference here. Oh my God! You know, I've got to ask. He's, just, he's a special person. He really is. He's a special person, and and you know, we have people like that that are willing to to sacrifice so much to, to offer themselves up. I mean, it's, it, it would be a shame if we can't get him to, to represent us. But. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really curious for you, Pat. What is it about documentaries, and especially things like American Relapse, The Bernie Blackout, The Deported? You know, what is it about documentaries that drives you, that attracts you to jump into the fray of "Quote unquote," telling the truth. Sure, um, I I generally like people. I'm curious. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who are often forgotten. Their voices don't get heard. Um, I, I I love underdogs, you know, and I, I love people that are trying to break through, whether internally or or in any aspect, you know, and and. Um, you know, like our, our team, I've been working, you know, we've been working together for 12 years and we all have this likeness of trying to, to tell these stories that kind of unite people that have common ground that seek a common ground that, that, um, that kind of dig deeper. You know, we even did a TV series called 24 to life and we fought people 24 hours before they're incarcerated. And you just learned so much about people in those, you know, and, and what's really one of their last one of the worst days in their life. Um, but yeah, I mean, super grateful, very lucky to be doing this sort of work. And it goes back to winning the trust of these people because you're only as good as, as your work. And so when people look at our work, they know collectively that 
we're going to tell their story. We're not going to tell our story and we're not going to be exploited, but we're going to be, um, you know, a good partner and try to share their story. You know, with every, with every film you make, whether it's a narrative film, a documentary film, as a, as a filmmaker, as a director, as a storyteller, you always learn something about yourself and your process um, and your approach. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making From the Hood to the Holler that you can now take forward into future projects that you do? Um, I, I think the biggest, the biggest thing I learned is, is follow your heart. Um, you know, follow your instincts. I literally called Greg Taylor, the DP, and said, will you join me on this, this crazy, crazy journey? And he said, yes. You know, so follow your heart, follow your instincts. And, you know, I mean, it takes, it takes people that, you know, care deeply about the same thing you do. You know, people that you love, like Adam and Terry and Greg, and it's it it's not one person; it's our it's our crew, and so that's that's everything. But um, every time you learn something new, but I mean, I think it always goes back to like, if you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it, and it's not for the money. <laughs> <laughs> and what about not for the money? I was gonna and, say, and I can't thank you enough for watching the, those 500 films in Santa Fe. I mean. You know, these film festivals, when you're not in the select, you know, I you know, there's, when you don't have that big backing and that mm -hmm. those big resources, like a lot of these uh, people have, I mean, it's, you know, getting into these regional film festivals and having a platform to showcase your work is so important. Mm -hmm. Very so much important. so. So those film festivals mean everything to, to people like um, myself and Adam. So thank you for that. You know, Adam, for you as a producer, you know, uh, I'm very curious because, you know, boots on the ground, you're the man with the checkbook. Sometimes you wish you weren't, I'm sure, especially when there are all these little zeros at the bottom and there's nothing in front of those zeros but zeros. Um, I mean, you know, what what is it that, that drives you, you know, that you learned? Producing. I, my involvement is more of uh, sweat equity, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and you know working with Pat on story and just you know being able there to to talk constantly about what we're capturing and what we're going to do and how we're going to shape it and that you know uh, God man me and Pat have had so many arguments <laughs> but it's 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 great because we know that we're going to get to the the solution of how we want to tell a story through it. But, um, you know, it, it's figuring out the post schedule and how we're going to, you know, get the film edited in a timely manner um, that doesn't sacrifice the quality at all, but also that we can keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward and, you know, keep getting jobs that pay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how long was the editing on this one, guys? Editing took, I think, four months, four and a half months, maybe. That's with, not too with bad. Two, with two editors. Two editors, fully dedicated, yeah. Adam and Terry, fully dedicated. And um, we have a great little office space, so they were in, in, in bays next to each other. And uh, just working around the clock and um, watching their 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 uh, collaboration. And they just, they work so well off each other. It, it, was, uh, it was really a gift to see, and it's just amazing. 
that we pulled this off in like literally that time. Well, um, and, and you know, and it's, the call comes in and Pat goes, and I knew Pat was shooting. I knew what he was shooting, and Pat goes, "Yeah, shot it. You know, do you want to come help shoot some more?" And and then you know, and then we do, and then it's like, okay, we we have to put this together. This is going to be difficult, and then it's just those conversations of like, I mean, how long is this going to take? What's the plan? And really making sure we you know, execute it right. And it's just when when that when that call comes and you you're like, wow, this is going to take some time and this is going to be a sacrifice in one way, but another way, it's just such a gift because to work on something you care about so much, something that when you sit with an audience and you feel that story, them going through that story and it, you just know it's the right one to be put out in the world and it, it means more than anything really. So it's just, it's, it's not really a sacrifice, it's just a gift, honestly. Well, I'm glad that you guys put this one out in the world, and I'm so thrilled that, that you know, it's in theaters now, limited, but come September 30th, just time to that last month before elections, it'll be available to everybody on VOD. Um, job so well done, guys. I, want, I can't wait to Thank see what, so I can't wait to see what you bring us next. <laughs> Uh, I'm I can't serious. wait to come back and talk with you. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely! But I, I do. I would love to see a short follow-up on what happens with the midterms with Booker. Hundred percent. Uh, You're going to get it. It's going to be electrifying. That's. Um, but thank you so much. I mean, it, it, you know, I can't can't echo Adam's um, comments anymore. I mean, it's, it's I'm I'm so grateful to put this out in the world because. You know, it's films like this that, um, that just, you know, we're just lucky to, to be able to be part of. And it's not easy, but when you're doing something you love, it, it's worth it. Well, fingers crossed for the midterms and Charles Booker. And hopefully we will chat sooner rather than later, guys. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. And you have a great rest of your week. And fingers crossed. Thank you. We got this. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Bye. guys. Bye-bye. All right. And that was it. Last week, we had a surprise guest when our director was missing, and we got a wonderful producer. Today, we get our writer-director of From the Hood to the Holler, Pat McGee, and he's joined by Adam Lincoln Health, the producer. We got a twofer today, people. Um, seriously, From the Hood to the Holler, it is a really interesting documentary about a inter very interesting candidate who, um, hey, he may be running for Kentucky, but any, when you get elected and you end up in Congress, be it the House or the Senate, that voice can ring for the other 49 states as well. So let's see what happens. Let's see what other docs... Uh, come across uh, my screen over the next few weeks. I know there are some other political ones out there. So, that is all the time we have again today. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, what is it we're doing next week? Next week is uh, religion. Yeah, I'm, I'm hitting all the goodies now. <laughs> next week is LGBTQ and religion. So, 
Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.